Good morning. Hey, I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. I'm going to try to do this without the glasses this morning and maybe just extra light. We'll see what happens. Uh, if not, Bill has a pair ready for me uh, if I begin to get blurry up here. Um, just want to catch us up to where we are in terms of the book of Malachi. We made it through verse 1 last week, so we're on fire. We'll do uh, probably like three or four verses this week, and uh, we'll pick up steam as we go along. But do remember the historical context and what's going on for Malachi. Remember, he's not dealing with idolatry like so many of the other prophets have had to deal with. What he's dealing with is actually malaise or cynicism or just good old-fashioned religious apathy. They had returned to the promised land after the exile, um, and this is after the third wave of people has returned. The temple has been rebuilt, and all should be going well. They should be uh, excited about things. However, they are still under uh, Persian rule. They still pay taxes to a foreign nation, and no one is celebrating their return. Nothing glorious is happening. It's just the life, the everyday life of the mundane. And so they are nonplussed by this, and that causes them to begin to wane in two key areas, which we'll hear more about after we hear of the indicative of God's love. But they, they struggle in the areas of worship, and then what should result from worship, which is their social ethics. So we could summarize it, and they struggle in the two key things of loving the Lord their God and loving their neighbor as they should love themselves. And so we'll see more of that in the coming weeks. So, uh, God sends in great grace a man with a burden. And that man's name is Malachi, which means my messenger. And he comes somewhere in probably the mid 400s or so. Uh, and this would be in phase with the book of Nehemiah, probably toward, as, as it's getting toward the end of Nehemiah's governorship. So, that gives us just perspective. And so, the thing that God is going to deal with first is that foundational indicative, uh, which is critical for us to understand. It's a critical indicative for us, too, as we talk about obedience, right? We constantly wrestle with, anytime we hear the word works, what do we immediately feel like we need to apologize or qualify? Remember, it's okay to be interactive. Oh, we're not saved. No, no, works don't save us. So, uh, you're just a worm. God doesn't care anything for you. Let's just make that very clear. There's nothing you can do to impress him because you are so filthy and vile, it's hard for me to even look on you. Which that's not actually how we should qualify it at all. Um, the indicative uh, of, of God's love actually makes it possible for us to be obedient. We saw it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, right? He has saved us to do the good works that he has prepared beforehand. There's actually stuff for us to do. There's a reason that you were saved. There's a reason that we have been chosen as the church. There was a reason that Israel was elected for a purpose, and that we're going to see Esau as well. And so it's important that we always remember that when God does redeem, it is for a purpose, and that is to display his glory in the world. And it also means that we are to display it to other people. We are not to put our light under a bushel. We are not just to get fat and happy and make sure we have everything okay and let the rest of the world burn. That is not the gospel. And so it's important that we come to this text and that we hear the words of God in the indicative when he says, I have loved you, and the people question, but how have you loved us? That when he gives his answer, 
that we are prepared to actually do the work of discovering what his answer is in fact saying because it's saying an awful lot to the people in their day and, and even more to us as Paul's going to pick it up in Romans 9. And so as we come to this text, we want to do so with great humility. Um, I hope that at least Bill predicted there'd be five of you that would have read the excursus. Uh, and uh, I think the numbers are higher, and so he owes me a free lunch or something out of that. And so I hope you read it, and if you didn't, uh, maybe you can take the time to go back and do it after this sermon, because again, it is very important that we do the work necessary to wrestle with the truths of the gospel, because I can tell you, I have heard from a number of you uh, before this sermon was ever even thought to be a thing, that one of the things you wrestle with is when God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. You say that specifically. Many of you have. And so hopefully what this will do for us is help us to realize what is actually being said there instead of us trying to make it say something that it is in fact not saying, which is Satan's work, not God's. So as we open this morning, I want, to, I want you to hear, this is the key truth that I want you to get, and I hope you will recognize this language from a verse, so be thinking about that, because I'm going to ask you what verse it comes from, and I want to hear from you. All right, you ready? Here we go. God's love for us is unchanging as evidenced in his being merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in faithfulness, forgiving sin, but being just, and protecting his people through judgment. The last part of that phrase, or the largest part of that phrase, where does that come from? Exodus 34, 5 through 7. You guys, that's an extra crown, little piece in your crown in heaven. You just, you just gained some points. Um, that's, see, that's not true. We, we've already said that's not possible. All right, so it comes from Exodus 34, 5 through 7. In fact, that verse you need to commit to memory because that is going to prove foundational for so much of what the Scripture is unpacking. In fact, there's a pretty good argument that the entirety of Scripture is some sort of hermeneutical, exegetical, or explanatory comment on those verses alone. And so it's important that we keep that in mind as we step to a text like that we hear like a thunderclap. Jacob I have loved, but Esau, Esau I have hated. What is your definition of love? That's going to be critical if, if we're going to hear that God loves us. If, if our definition of love is distorted, then we may be looking for the wrong thing from God, right? So what is your definition of love? For you cheeky Christians, you would say, well, as it turns out, 1 Corinthians 13, it's tattooed on the inside of my leg, as it turns out. Uh, um, uh, maybe, and, and that's a great definition of love, by the way. But is it really yours? Is it how, you, because let me tell you, here's how you know what your definition of love is. By how you love others. That is your definition. Not how you want to be loved. Not how you require love of others, but if I want to know what your definition of love is, all I need to do is spend time with you and watch how you treat your neighbors. Watch how you treat your spouse. Watch how you treat your children. Watch how you treat your coworkers. That is your definition. And it would be worth your time to think through and kind of process what that is. Right? Because, uh, you know, and maybe even ask. Put yourself out there a little bit. Say, hey, my pastor, he's kind of crazy. I, I don't know. Uh, he said I should ask you this. Uh, what is my definition of love based on how I treat you? 
Now, you may want to not do that on the Sabbath in case it goes bad. Pick another day uh, and give yourself plenty of runway to work through it. But it's a great question to ask, right? Because that is going to influence how you see God loving you. All of us have baggage on this topic, right? When we hear God the Father say, I have loved you. For many of you, uh, that is a very difficult statement because you were not loved well by your earthly father. Or you yourself have not loved so well on your side of it and you, you read it through the, that cracked and fractured lens. And so it's important that we also recognize that on this topic we all have baggage for which God is not to be hung. He's not to be placed in the gallows or in the dock. It's actually those things that should be placed upon the cross. But we have to take the time to process through them and recognize that it is in fact there. If you would hear what Joyce Baldwin, uh, Old Testament scholar, says uh, about what's coming up. She says, God's love is popularly thought to be a revelation first made in the New Testament, but this is far from the truth. It is implicit from the beginning and especially from the time of the covenant with Abraham. Now, we've talked about this in here, and I've preached through the Abrahamic covenant, and oftentimes, if the answer is not Jesus, it's probably going to be the Abrahamic covenant, right? Any question I ask you, those two will cover about 90% of the questions I ask. Tower of Babel is going to be probably the other 10%. I don't know why, just the way it is. But the Abrahamic covenant says this, and this is critical for you to remember. It's going to be critical for what we got coming up. The Abrahamic covenant says that all of the nations will come from Abraham and be blessed but it's conditional based on what? How they treat the people of God. That doesn't mean that their salvation is tied to whether or not uh, they treat the people of God well because why? What, what one really great New Testament example could you give which clearly states that if you treat the people of God poorly, you don't automatically go to hell? Paul, thank you. Saul, if you remember, put to death many in the early church. He held the coats of those who stoned Stephen to death. So you cannot have a theology that states that if you mistreat the people of God, that can't be what the Abrahamic covenant is saying. Don't make it say what it's not saying. But blessing, it going along with the people in the land, that's a different matter. So if those folks were willing to treat the people of God, because that is actually in their best interest, it is not that they will uh, serve as uh, diminished slaves. No, to treat the people of God well is actually to recognize the image in ourselves. And in doing that, become the people of God, no longer an external nation, but part and parcel of the greater people of God. But if they oppose, there would be cursing. That is very important for the backdrop of Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. But do recognize that God's desire is to bless the peoples of the earth. God's desire, as we will see when we go through the books of First and Second Peter after this study in Malachi, God's desire is that none should perish. Now, we can get tangled up in the math and, 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 and did Cameron just become a universalist? No, that's a God's desire. Did Cameron just unchain himself from the edicts of the Reformation? No, I didn't. I just quoted scripture. 
And so it's very important that we recognize that this uh, Abrahamic covenant is the backdrop for these things. And it's a display of God's love. And it's been there from the beginning. And we've talked about that a lot in here, uh, that, that the Old Testament is filled with God's grace. That to say that grace only begins in the New Testament is to say, say you're being saved from God instead of to him. No, you're being saved to him. And so as we step into this text, we have to hold all of that. In fact, this is a great uh, uh, argument for why you not spending time in Scripture sets you up for Satan to be able to twist you and turn you around, right? So if you have no idea who Jacob and Esau are, and you run across this Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, you have no choice but to back away from the love of God and say, I don't understand. You have no choice but to question God's sanity. And one of the reasons that we read Deuteronomy 6, if you're not helping your children understand, someday they will stumble across either Malachi 1, 2 through 5 or Romans 9, more than likely, and they are going to be confused and they are going to be upset and they're going to be lost. Maybe not eternally, but at least for now. So it becomes critical that we actually do the work of studying the scripture of God. And you say, but it's just, let me just, let me help you. You can actually read through the entire Bible in three years, reading at a clip of 10 minutes a day. Some of you have never read through the entire Bible, I would guess, if the, if the averages hold. Bart Ehrmans, who is a radical uh, anti-theist who teaches at the University of North Carolina, his class on the New Testament is one of the most popular in the entire university. Classes of three to 400, Right? And so one of the things that Bart does, and I'm, I'm riffing off of this from a friend of mine who actually took the class, uh, and he's used it as a sermon illustration, so it's getting extra mileage. Uh, I'll probably send him a quarter or something like that. But as he sat in class, the first thing Bart Ehrman said, he said, all right, of the 300 people in here, who believes that God's word is, infall is the infallible word of God? It's inerrant. 95% of the room raised their hand, Okay. The next question was the devastating question. Now, how many of you have read it all the way through? Out of 300 people, 15 people raised their hand. Which set the stage for Ermans, who does not believe that the, the scripture is infallible or inerrant. He was able to then say, well, it seems to me if you thought God actually wrote it, you would want to read it. So what did he just say? He said, how is it that a, an actual disciple of the Lord our God not have any desire to read his word when it is the rule of life or it is the, the way of life or, or it is the way of redemption or the description of his love for his people? We are without excuse. And you may say, golly, if Cameron's starting here, it can't get any better. If Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated it. It gets better, actually. What I'm saying to you, though, is a good portion of what we wrestle with in our faith in terms of doubt, which, by the way, is not the antithesis to faith, so be careful, but a good portion of it is because we are not spending time in the Word. What I have discovered, and, and I, I can guarantee you uh, that there's not many of you in here who doubt more than I do, even at current, who are not. I, I practice a hermeneutic of suspicion, which is a truly, thoroughly postmodern, uh, dark thing, okay? And you may be going... I think he just, just disqualified himself, maybe. 
But what I do is I, I discover again and again and again and again that the Lord is both faithful and good and that his word is manna to us. It is the balm of Gilead. Every time I approach a question, I think, Lord, there is no way you can wiggle out of this one. Yet again, he does. Yet again, he says, but I have loved you. And so I want that for you too. I don't want for Satan to be able to, to take a portion of God's word and wrap you around its axle and harm you. And so, um, as we step into this text, let's do so with great humility, remembering who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is but the first portion of verse two. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So the burden of Malachi begins, notice this, not with the sins and the failings of the people. Let me say that again. Notice that the burden of Malachi, which, by the way, is God's burden, right, handed to Malachi to give to the people, starts not with their sins and their failings. Now, what could we learn from that, parents? What could we learn from that, brothers and sisters? What could we learn from that, managers and co-workers, neighbors? How often is that not where we begin? How often do we jump straight to the actions and, and, and the prosecution and the judgment instead of first declaring a firm foundation that we, in fact, do love you and want what's best for you? We, in fact, want to make sure that you know you are welcome here. However, we got some stuff we got to talk about. So he says, I have loved you. And in the Hebrew here, this is an ongoing reality. It's not a finished work. This means that not only has he loved them, he continues to love them and he will always love them. This is an unchanging love. It's the great declaration of God's covenant love for them. However, the people question, how have you loved us? How short their memories how quickly they only care about what have you done for me lately? What are you doing for me right now? Why is everything not already fixed? Why are not all the prayers answered? Does this sound familiar to you at all? How often do we turn to the Lord after all he's done for us? We spend very little time remembering and, and recognizing all of the times he's been faithful and come through, and we find ourselves in a moment either we're waiting on a job we're waiting on school, we're waiting on uh, a significant other, we're waiting on something, and in the waiting, we come undone very quickly. I don't know about you, but I am horrifically impatient. I am quick to question the love of God, especially when I have so poorly remembered one of the great antidotes for me has been our Lord's Day, mine and Susan's Lord's Day Sabbath practice of taking time to remember how God has been good just even the previous week. It has been transformative. And it's so simple, actually, to just pause and remember all the places that God has been good, and that sets you up well for when you find yourself in a position where you would be quick to forget otherwise. Again, one of the reasons we read Deuteronomy 6 this morning, what does it call for us to do? 
remember, 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 and share your remembrance. Make sure that your children are trained in the way they should go, which is to recognize in all things God's love for them and his goodness. If we don't train them in that, the world is going to train them in the other, which is God is one of three things. Actively malevolent, uh, uninterested, which I don't think there's much difference there, or he doesn't exist, right? That's what the world is going to teach us, our children and us, about God if we fail to remember. It's just too easy to look around the world and see those things. I remember when I was uh, not a believer, and one of the key things for me as a, uh, that kept me at bay, uh, at least on the functional earthly level, was I had an uncle who was the one Christian in our family I've shared with you before. His name was Randy. And Randy died with uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. I was there the day that they decided to let him suffocate to death. I don't know if you've ever watched someone suffocate to death. Uh, but it is a cruelty that I, I don't even know how to get my head around. And so for me, when someone would try to say, you know, the Lord loves you, I would, I would wel welcome them into the hospital room and I'd point to him and I'd say, Show me your benevolent God here. And the silence I just let give, that's all I ever got. Because for me, if God existed, he had to be malevolent to do something like that to one of his own. If he was uh, uninterested, that is even worse if he is powerful for him to do nothing. And so for me, what the world was offering to me was a very distorted view of the love of God. Now, you may try to pull me aside after church and go, well, how did you discover that the love of God was in that? I haven't yet, but I will in the new heavens and new earth because Randy will come running whole. And I know that that was not his end. Even crueler would be that that would be all Randy would ever have is that 94-pound, 6'4 frame, crushed and broken That can't be the end. And God in his mercy said, no, it will not be the end in this fallen world. And so, yes, I understand what it means to question the love of God. In fact, as a Christian, I've done it. When we moved to Macon, my wife was pregnant with our third child. And we weren't there but a few days, and she suffered um, not a miscarriage. It's called blighted ovum, which is a different phenomenon. And the day that we found out about that, a day or so later, I come home and there's a tree through the roof of our house, drove one of the trusses through the bedroom wall. And I remember standing in the rain and looking at the sky saying, Lord, you could have killed me in Jonesboro and not in this God-forsaken hellhole called Macon. Which I haven't really changed my opinion on Macon a whole lot. <laughs> but I have changed my opinion on God. So I questioned his love and I've been there and, and there may be a day where I do it again. And there's days you do it, and there'll be days you do it again. And what I want you to notice here is, does the Bible end with their question? Does God vaporize them for daring to question his love? What I want us to see here in just a moment, he's actually going to condescend to answer their question. And he does the same for us too. Sometimes it's longer in coming. Sometimes it's in a difficult phrase like what we see here. 
You think we're confused by it? I, I don't know how Israel would have heard it. It had context. It probably made more sense to them. But they question God. They want proof. Listen to what uh, Old Testament scholar Pieter Verhoff says about this. He says, the Lord is going to admonish and judge his people because of their sins in various spheres of their lives. But before addressing them with the stipulations and the obligations of the law, he confronts them with the gospel. I have loved you. So have you ever questioned God's love for you? Better question might be how many times have you questioned God's love for you? And what is it that has caused or even causes you to question God's love? And what are you doing with it? Are you just letting it sit on the shelf like some sort of festering, rotting thing? Or are you cognizant that God beckons you to engage it? That he is big enough to wrestle with you in this question as he was with Jacob, who he will declare that he has loved. Do you not remember from Habakkuk when Habakkuk is so confused at what's going on in Israel, the blood that is being shed that is innocent, and God seems to be doing nothing, and when he challenges God, the answer is, fine, I'll bring the Babylonians and I will curb stomp every one of you. And remember how Habakkuk responds. Like, ah, I kind of, yeah, that's a bad idea, I think. But I will stand my watch for you. Yeah, I've seen you good too many times. I don't get at all what you just said to me. I don't get at all how it's going to work out. But I will stand my watch until you have answered because I've seen you be good too many times. And remember what Habakkuk concludes. Even if there is nothing left to celebrate, you are good. My paraphrase. So remember that asking the question is not the antithesis to faith. In fact, it is a step deeper into a maturing faith. If you in this world don't ever question God's love for you, I'm just not sure what you're even paying attention to. If you don't ever question God's word, you're not reading it. But if you don't then go from that question from that place to struggle with to find out either in community, which is very wise, by the way, using all of the means of grace and resources to get the question answered, then you don't really care. Why are you asking the question? Show it the respect it deserves. Show God the respect he should deserve. Test him. He tells us to do that in 1 John. Test the spirits and discover if they are what they in fact say they are. And the real question is this, for those of you who've kind of been through some of those questions. Has God's love really ever changed for you? Or was it actually your perspective and understanding of the depths and the heights and the width and the incomprehensibility of it that grew? In my case, there is nothing clean about the way my uncle died. I should never be okay with it. There is nothing clean about losing our third child. 
I should never be okay with it. There should never be a moment where theologically I go, praise God they died. Because he's not okay with it. Because he sent Jesus. And Jesus rose from the dead to conquer sin and death, which is the effect that we feel deep in our bones. Remember him bellowing before the grave of Lazarus. Remember that he came to defeat it and take it away ultimately. That is the greatest display of God's love we will ever have. So are you even wrestling really with the question, if you want to, and don't you dare let Satan tell you that we're too busy to deal with it. Uh, we don't really care. We do. And we'll wrestle with it with you. It may take some time. Some of these questions just are not easy. Some of these circumstances are not easy. Um, Josh was sharing this morning of a family in St. Louis that, that's going through a situation where the, the wife has been essentially passing for almost a decade inexplicable. The doctors can't figure out what's going on. They, they have no idea. It has been as costly as you can possibly think on every front to that family. And it is near the end. You don't think they are questioning. Do you think that we could just step in and say, hey guys, let me just, I'm just going to read you a couple verses and then we're good, right? No. No, this will be, this will be years in coming. But you know what I know about God? He is patient over the years. He is patient through the years. And he always shows up, somehow, some way. Now, let's turn back to the text and hear how God responds to their question of how he has loved them. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet, I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes have seen this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So often when we hear Jacob I have loved but Esau I have hated, we place the emphasis upon the wrong syllable, right? We place all of the emphasis on his hatred toward Esau, fearing that maybe we're Edomite by some sort of heritage lineage, like, you know, you want to go do that, what is it, the A21 or A23, the thing there, there you know, you just, you just go in and you're like, hey, I just want to know I'm an Edomite, that's all. Can you, do you have a quick test for that? Uh, uh, because we are concerned, or we're concerned about a whole people group being predestined uh, to, to reprobation and hell, which, by the way, should be deeply concerning. But to try to say that this text is saying that is to stretch it unbiblically too far. And to understand this, we've got to do a little bit of biblical theology. We've got to do some work. Now, don't forget the Abrahamic covenant because that looms in the background. What did he say? I will bless the nations that, that basically walk with and bless and help the people of God. Now, let me pause for just a second. What was it they were supposed to help the people of God do? This is critical. Be a high priest to all the surrounding nations. 
Did you hear that? It is not that, and, and, and some of you should have bristled as we read Deuteronomy 7. You should have been kind of like, we're awful full of ourselves, aren't we, to say we're the chosen ones and all. Uh, but we're chosen for something. We are chosen to display the love of God to all who have not heard it. It's missional. It is the great commission. It is the Abrahamic covenant. It is what we have been fashioned for. You were not elect so that everybody else can burn. We have been elected as the church. They were elected as a nation to be a light, to call others to them. And the other nations were to help support that reality. If you get that twisted, none of this makes sense. So fast forward to Genesis 25, when God prophesies of the twins that are in Rebekah's womb. And he gives this prophecy in Genesis 25. He says, there are two nations in you. And basically, the older and stronger will serve the weaker, the younger. Now notice there is no language of hatred there. The original prophecy is not a discussion about uh, uh, eternal election. It is about physical election and purpose in the world. What we know that Jacob goes on to become, he has his name changed to Israel. And in Genesis 35, he's given the same uh, cultural mandate that Adam and Eve are given in Genesis 1. He is told, and in essence, it actually merges that and the Abrahamic covenant. He says, nations and kings will come from you. And you will have dominion, and you'll be fruitful, and you'll multiply. And so, so Israel, Jacob's purpose is to be in the promised land and to reflect specifically the glory of God in that. Okay? That's really important. Now, Let's talk about Jacob's character for a second. What does his name mean? Deceiver. Does he live up to his name as it turns out? Yes, he does. He is not a good man. So what does that tell us about the electing grace of the Lord our God? It is not worldly at all. It is not based on who's bigger, who's stronger, who's faster, who's first. In fact, the New Testament tells us that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. This is a constant pattern all throughout Scripture, that the love of God is displayed not in a worldly way. And even more important, it is not exclusive to the weak and the younger or the lesser. It is the charge of the stronger, the older, to actually see that they are protected and it, makes, and it takes place. Esau's election was to serve as the older, stronger brother, and protect the younger in his purpose. Interestingly, Edom always dwelled just outside of the land of Israel, just outside of Judah, which means they would have stood between them and what? All of the surrounding nations, ultimately. They would have been what? The first line of defense. Esau had a purpose which was to serve and glorify God in how he served his younger brother. Prophecy had been given. However, the story doesn't take long to unfold. At the end of Genesis 25, Esau comes in. He's, he's hungry from working all day, and he is just, he's a man of visceral intent. 
And, and Jacob's making some nice stew, right? Some artisanal something or other. Uh, and it's uh, free range, you know, original free range paleo, probably. Uh, and so, uh, so Esau comes in and he's like, oh, I'm gonna have some stew here. Take my birthright. Now, you would miss it if you thought it was just something visceral going on and something not more deeply insidious. Because it says that Esau detested his birthright. Now remember, tied to his birthright is that he would serve the younger, weaker, milder brother. In selling Jacob the birthright, what did he think he had just done? Usurp the prophecy of God, making him now the younger, weaker for whom Jacob would now serve. See, that's a very simple math, mechanistic view of God and theology. We do it, don't we? We think, if I just maneuver it just right, God is hand, he's, he's hamstrung, his hands are tied, and now he has to do what I want him to do. Now, where did this happen first? Well, when Cain dis discovers that his offering isn't good enough, how does he decide to make his offering better? Eliminate the competition, right? If this is all God has, he has to take it, right? He has to take it because he's got no other choice, as if God were in the business of just being stuck in stuff. So Esau thought he had usurped the prophecy that was given to Rebekah and that he had now risen. Well, Jacob goes on in chapter 27 and steals the blessing by dressing up like Esau, right? Which Esau is angry. He's furious. And he says, I'm going to, as soon as dad dies, I'm going to kill that little punk. That's a modern translation, obviously. And, uh, and so again, what's he saying? I don't care what God said. I am going to rise up in my strength and change history. You need to understand that's what's happening. That Esau in his great arrogance was trying to usurp the very word of God. And if you don't know that, this doesn't make any sense to you. Now, not only does he do that, but as the story goes on, he now passes on this idea to his own people known as the Edomites. And the Edomites opposed the people of God throughout the entirety of their history. There is never a day where they are unified. In fact, when the people of God are wandering in the wilderness, for those of you who skipped the book of Numbers, you wouldn't know this. This is Numbers 20. People of God have a chance to pass through Edom. Again, the older brother, stronger brother, should be willing to make sure that the people of God got to where they were going because God said that's where they were going. But yet again, they think they can usurp the word of God and do what they want to do so they won't allow the people of God to come through. As the story continues to unfold, again, if you skip the book of Chronicles, both Chronicles, you're not going to know this. Second Chronicles 21. The Davidic lineage is in trouble. It looks like it's about to end. But God utters a prophecy and says that it won't, that he will make sure that it continues. The next verse Edom chooses its own king and refuses to acknowledge the king of Judah. Now, what are they doing? Usurping the word of the Lord for their own gain, refusing to be a blessing to the people of God. Now, if that weren't bad enough, 
If you read and make it all the way to 2 Chronicles 28, you would discover that they actually help the Babylonians sack Judah. They help them carry people and stuff off. This leads to the great imprecatory folk song. Long before Bob Dylan knew what he was doing, Psalm 137 is written, penned. And, and, it's, and it's an interesting psalm because the people of Babylon are saying to them, sing us a song, entertain us, you Yiddish people. I don't know if they were called Yiddish back then, but you Hebrew people. And so they pen these words, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept. And then it goes on to talk about smashing babies' heads against rocks. And then it goes on to talk about how they hope Edom is laid bare for what they've done to Judah. And the whole time the Babylonians are clapping along because it's probably like a, a happy tune, dissonant with the actual words because they don't understand the Hebrew. But it was the original protest song, an imprecatory psalm. Edom is included. So all of their history, they have been at war. Edom has opposed arrogantly trying to usurp the word of God. Now, you may say, well, that, that doesn't convince me one iota that God has not rendered them uh, eternally to be destroyed. Ah, well, here we go. Let's use the word of God again. Deuteronomy 23, 7 and 8. <clears throat> There's a law, and the law says this. Do not abhor your brother, Edom. Do not abhor the Egyptian, for you were a sojourner in his country. In the third generation, they will come into the temple. Did you just hear that? No way, no possible way that it can be declared that no one from Edom ever came to eternal saving grace. God's word has said it. In addition, he sends a prophet. We don't preach from this often because it would be a hard thing to preach from. Uh, but Obadiah, little one-chapter prophet, comes to them and says, you are arrogant. You think you can hide in the hills and that God doesn't know what you're doing, but he does, and he is going to judge you. You have mistreated your brother Jacob for the last time. Now, is Obadiah reading the news of something that's already happened, or is he warning them of a definitive event if they don't repent and change? He's warning them of a definitive event if they don't repent and change. Now, as evidence of God's grace, do you have any idea how many years pass from the birth of Esau to the destruction of Edom, which does in fact come to pass? Rough guess. 1,400, you are really gracious, Bill. It's about 600. Uh, God, Bill's God's a lot more gracious than, uh, but it's about 600 years. That's fair, don't you think? He doesn't just wipe them out straight away. He keeps warning them and granting them opportunity to obey him. And they choose not to in their arrogance. So sooner or later, God must prove himself just or his love for his own people is meaningless if he cannot protect them. Because Edom had purposed. This is what we read here in the scripture. Even though we have been, we have been shattered, we will rebuild and we will resume the blood debt, the civil war. Now what's interesting is that the people who finally defeat them are known as Nabatian Arabs. And they set up a, a state called Idumea. Now, 
Bible scholars, what key person comes from Idiomea? His name is Herod, and he will have a sword in his fist, and he will slaughter the innocents in an attempt to end the Christ. Again, if the older, stronger brother had done what he was supposed to do, there would be no Herod. But there may be someone else who would rise. But they failed. And in essence, put at risk the coming Christ. But because God is sovereign and won't allow the failings, our failings, to have the final say, the sword did not fall on Jesus then. It fell later when it was intended, when the fullness of time had come. And so what we have is a statement in which he is saying, Jacob, I have loved, and all the evidence of that love is all that stuff that we read, mercy and grace and forgiving of sins and long-suffering and patience. And in his dealings with Esau and the Edomites, we also see that God is merciful and gracious and long-suffering and patient, but he is also just and he will judge the sins of the people. But remember, it won't extend past the third and the fourth generation. Remember the law in Deuteronomy 23, which states the third generation of the Edomites and the Egyptians would come into the temple. The Lord our God is good. He is faithful. And he is just. And he loves us. And so what he's saying to them is, this is how I have loved you. I have made sure that you were restored into the very land. Jacob, I have loved. In that is the promise that they would continue the work that Jacob was given. And when he turns and says, but Esau, I have hated, what he's saying is, and I am reassuring you, I have protected you. I have protected you from one of your darkest enemies, your own flesh and blood, your own brother. And he will never rise again to do anything to you. But that does not mean that every Jacobite or Israelite is in heaven. In fact, Paul says so in Romans 9. We don't have anywhere near enough time to deal with the Romans 9 aspect. But all that I just said plays into what goes into Romans 9 because it's interesting that what follows Romans 9, 10, and 11 are statements in uh, chapters 14 and 15, listen, that the stronger are to always bear with the weaker. And notice this, where Esau failed so miserably to be the older, stronger brother who was to protect the weaker, younger brother who had been given a great purpose. Christ, our older brother, has not failed. Remember what Colossians says, he is the firstborn. He is the eldest of all. And notice that what he protects us from is the power of sin and death. Notice that he actually says, you will do more than even I have done in this world. You will carry the light farther than even I did. It is you who will dress up the church in your righteousness. Revelation 19, you will beautify the bride with what you do. Doesn't mean that we're stronger than Jesus. Doesn't mean that we have more power than Jesus. But what it does mean is that he's given us a lot more to do. We will go farther in union with him and all the power that he gives us because he, the elder brother, the truer Esau, actually did what it was 
that God intended for him to do with we who are much weaker and much younger who serve. So listen to what Ian Duguid and Matthew Harmon say about this passage. It says, the contrasting fates of Israel and Edom foreshadow the dynamic of the gospel. Sin requires judgment. Otherwise, there would be no end to the destructive impulsiveness of an Esau, the manipulative scheming of a Jacob, the unfaithful presumption of an Israel, or the treacherous collaboration of an Edom. But the gospel promises that it is possible to pass through judgment and find restoration on the other side. The restoration of Jacob and of Israel ultimately points beyond them to the gospel, which teaches that final, definitive judgment falls not on deserving sinners like ourselves, but on God's beloved Son. So a great question for you to think about this Lord's Day Sabbath, and even in the days ahead, is how has God tangibly evidenced his love for you? Think not just big things like, you know, uh, somebody came up and gave me a Maserati for free. Um, Think in all of the things that you have no control over and how he moves in each and every one of those things. Think about all the ways in which there are things you had nothing actually, you could make no claim upon it, just like Jacob could make no claim upon what he becomes and what God does through him. And give thanks to the Lord. Help to facilitate your own growth and gratitude this day. If there's anything that cripples us in our culture, we are so close to this culture in Malachi. We are so apathetic and cynical. We're so weary of all the rhetoric. I mean, it just saddened my heart to hear what the, the, there was a professor in California said she would dance on the grave of Barbara Bush. So hear me rightly, that's not a political statement coming from me. No one should say that about anyone else ever. Ever. The fact that we would think anyone could be reduced to that. We have done it too, by the way. There are people that we would say, I'll dance on their grave when they're gone. But notice that Israel does not have that liberty even with Edom. They cannot abhor their brother because they are image bearers. And to let ourselves go down that path, is destructive. And so the Lord our God so graciously calls for us to remember his love for us, to remember all the ways in which he is good, to remember all of the ways in which he has been faithful so that as we go forward, the darkness would not have the say. So we learned two big things from Malachi 1, 2 through 5. It teaches us that God's love is unchanging toward his people. That's just great news. It doesn't fluctuate based on your obedience, but what does is your understanding of his love for you. Don't miss that. But his love does not fluctuate in Christ. Second, that God's love is displayed in his being merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in faithfulness, forgiving sin, but being just and protecting his people through judgment. There are times when you are the one who is trying to usurp the very word of God, when you are the one who are opposing the people of God in some way, shape, or form, and it is you who must be justly judged. And for even that, you should give thanks. 
I can say that because I, in graduate school, had started a men's faith deconstruction group with the intent of absolutely destroying the faith of seven other very foolish men. I have no idea why they signed up for this. And God, in great mercy, judged me justly when he called me to Christ and broke me. And not only did he do that, as if that weren't near enough, he then, and this may be the cruelest stroke of all, called me into ministry. So that what I would have to do is no longer try to tear down, but build up. And also bear the strokes that come with the attempts to build up among people who don't want to be built up. They just want to tear down or be left alone. And so, the Lord judged justly there. And even that, we have to say, thank you, Lord. That, too, is a display of your grace. As we close this out, listen to what John McKay says. He's a New Testament, actually Old Testament scholar. There can be no doubt about God's love. Now, that's a very provocative statement. That, for those of you who are, uh, you're like, what? Yeah, there can be. But wait, he goes on. He has irrefutably demonstrated it by sending his son. We then wonder why, when we have received the ultimate gift, that the church is not vibrant, attracting crowds, and being effective in its moral and spiritual impact on our country, why is there not revival? We must be careful not to fall into the way of thinking that it is because of some deficiency in God's love. Rather, we are to question our response to his love. The fortunes of the church are blighted by the lack of Christ-centeredness in the thinking and acting of those who are in his church. We ought to examine ourselves and expose what warps our thinking and respond with that total self-dedication that flows from recognizing what his love has given to us. See, it's always easier to think it's some deficiency on some other side, right? It's always easier to kind of point elsewhere. But the scripture calls for us to deal first with the house of the Lord, do internal work first, do plank footage work first. And so for those of us who are questioning God's love, one of the things that we ought to also do is question our love question how we are living this out, question what we have done with it, because God made it clear. Isaiah 58 is just a watershed passage for me. The people are questioning in much the same way. Lord, we've done all this religious stuff, and you don't even, you don't do anything. He says, well, who told you to do all that nonsense? In the way you're doing it, you strike with a wicked fist. But you want to hear from me? You want to get where I am? Come serve the poor. Come clothe the naked. Come treat your own flesh as you would treat yourself. And there you will find me. And then you can become repairs of the streets to dwell in. And then you can have something of great value. But if you are just going to stand and wait for blessing to fall and do nothing, you patently do not understand the gospel. Now, that may sound like a hard word, but that's God's love to us because he's welcoming us into the work that he's doing and saying, join me and enjoy. Where our greatest joy, our greatest value is found is in doing the will of the Lord, is in walking with him and seeing all that reconciliation come true. Will we join him? 
or will we just stand and question? If you are wrestling, again, I wanna, I wanna compel you. Come talk to us. But recognize, I don't have any quick answers. But we'll wrestle, we'll chop, we'll work through, and we'll do what we can to abide with you until we get there. But do the hard work. Do the good work to discover just how deeply God loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the ways in which you have displayed your love for us, but most of all, in the person and work of Christ, who has defeated sin and death by being crucified brutally, as we saw uh, so much of how just even the mocking, not even just the physical, but the psychological was so far beyond anything we can comprehend. And yet he didn't open his mouth because he knew that the shame he was enduring would actually lead to the joy of our redemption. And he endured it all. God, thank you that you love us so much, that you give us work to do, that you give us all the resources we need to do it, that you invite us into this good work. May we be able to worship in spirit and truth, recognizing your love. Would you have your spirit stir within us? Bring to mind many examples this Lord's Day Sabbath of how you have loved us. May our conversation not be, what did you get out of this service? But instead, what did God get out of my worship, what I brought this morning? May we recognize afresh how deeply you have loved us. In Christ's name, amen.